Neil is a cybersecurity expert who has spent time in the U.S. Air Force working for Cyber Command. He has also worked for multiple Fortune 100 brands and PricewaterhouseCooper. Currently, he is leading a global security operations transformation program and consulting through his company, Root Access Protection. Jeff is a named account manager with VMware Carbon Black. He has more than 30 years experience in the technology and cybersecurity sectors, helping clients around the world achieve first-class security protocols. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So I want to jump right in. Um, first, we want to talk about uh, AWS, uh, specifically an AWS coin mining attack. Uh, Anthony Randoza tweeted earlier this week that they spotted a new AWS coin mining attack and ha that had some interesting observations uh, one that the attacker had root access, um, the bot framework was written in Golang, and uh, the attackers brought their own SSH keys. Uh, Neil, what what have you learned about the attack so far? Um, I, I, I think I think you know less about learning about this attack, more so just scary. You know, scary in terms of some of the things that this attack has highlighted, right? I mean, I think I think for years we've um, you know been been doing things in the cloud, and, and we've done some amazing things in AWS. I, I think you know having cloud infrastructure like AWS and Azure has given us a lot of flexibility to you know you know stand things up and spend things down, and um, you know be really flexible in our IT deployments and whatnot. Um, one of the things I think we might have potentially failed at as we've we've kind of been more agile. And, and been more aggressive in pushing into that space is we may have potentially neglected the value of trying to bring over some of the traditional security things that we've tried to do on-premise and, and focus them uh, in, in on the cloud. And I think this is an example, this is a scary example of where, you know, something as simple as poor access controls around your, uh, your AWS secrets um, can, can result in a, um, a pretty hefty bill from uh, from AWS at the end of the day. I think uh, I think they said that they stood up uh, what was it, about about ten, uh, you know C five uh, you know extra large EC two instances to do to do coin miner software. So uh, you know in this case the attackers were absolutely not even worried about being stealthy. Um, you know this was a bot that was simply geared towards you know how long can I can I you know get in there and uh, and and get things spun up and, and try to mine as much uh, as much uh, cryptocurrency as humanly possible. Um, you know, I, I think causes a problem from a, from a, from a cloud architecture, a, a standards, and a and a visibility perspective. You know, it, it's kind of interesting on the uh, the AWS side because you see these uh, these attacks come through, and the impact is huge financially, right? Um, but my first question comes to where did it come from? How did they get access to begin with? Um, and uh, you know, could that have been leveraged for something even? worse than this. I mean, this was, uh, this was a big impact, obviously. But if you've got unfettered access, root access uh, to an AWS account at a large uh, instance, it could be catastrophically worse. But I think I think I think to your first question, right, which is like, how do they get access? I, I think we go back to to just you know um, you know software repositories and things like that. I mean, GitHub is is massive out there, and, and there's tons of scripts that are out there and available, and there's tons of um, you know you know documentation and examples whereby people inadvertently upload their source code to GitHub, and inside that source code has got usernames and passwords. It's got you know AWS keys. It's got you know, all sorts of information that that's out there. But I mean, that's only one vector. I think, uh, you know, when you think about other ways that people upload data that's out there, I mean, you think about like, uh, like, like Stack Overflow, right? If, if there's any developers on the, the podcast that are familiar with Stack Overflow, right, where you go in there and you ask for, 
you know, suggestions and, you know, how do you do certain code examples and things like that? You know, there's people who have been known to put stuff on stack overflow that they, that they weren't supposed to. And so, you know, I think it gets back to, because we've, we've allowed our, you know, agile development folks to, you know, kind of go outside of their, um, you know, you know, on-premise, uh, you know, control infrastructure for that. We've, we've also then also stopped focusing on some of the normal things that we would do both from a data, uh, data security perspective, as well as a, a baseline configuration perspective to, to lock down those instances. I think what's even more scary for me is that because we've ignored the cloud and I, and I say that knowing that that's probably going to trigger some folks who, who hear that, um, you know, there's, there's a lack of visibility. There's a lack of baseline configuration there's a lack of control in the name of being agile and trying to trying to hit that bottom line that you know i think it, it's 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 you know low-hanging fruit for an attacker yeah it, it, you, you mentioned something that just kind of uh, uh triggers my uh, my thought there's uh, a quote in jurassic park and i'm going to absolutely butcher it right because um i am not that guy that can <laughs> can remember quotes for the life of me but uh the the mathematician guy whoever he was talks about this, uh, you know, we got all caught up on, you know, whether yeah. we could do something yeah. and never thought, should we? And the whole idea of agile is, hey, collaborate, uh, work with your peers and uh, work with people that you don't necessarily know. Um, and, uh, you know, that opens the door to some great uh, speed to market kind of stuff, but it obliterates what you stand for, Neil, and what I've been preaching as a security evangelist for the last number of years, you know, should you? Well, but, but I think this, but you hit, you know, we can keep pulling on that thread just a little bit there because what, what this really boils down to is, um, you know, we have failed as an industry because we continue to tell people no. And, 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 and I had a great CISO that I worked for. They don't like that. They don't like hearing. They don't like that very much at at all. But, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, I'm going to give props to a, to a CISO that I had a long time ago, Bobby Ford, you know, when I worked for him, um, you know, and, and he had a fantastic saying, right, which was, you know, in, enable the business to take risk. And, and I think that we've been so many years, both IT before cybersecurity was really mainstream. And then, you know, you know, since cybersecurity has been pretty mainstream, we've been known as the no organization. And so nobody wants to talk to us anymore about cybersecurity. And so as a result, we don't get lumped into that, that bucket of being agile and, and being able to, to be equated to speed to market. And I think that, that helps lend to these types of, of, of oversights by, by, you know, these types of, of situations. Well, I think it begs the question of, you know, what is the right amount of uh, cloud, right? You, you push to the cloud because it's faster. You push to the cloud because you can manage costs better. Um, but unless you're talking about risk, uh, which I would argue that uh, a lot of the developers uh, and the business people that are only looking at the profit side of the house of I can sell more, I can bring it to market faster, I can, uh, you know, open the doors from a marketing perspective to totally new uh, groups of people. Um, and then all of a sudden you're left with this, oh yeah, AWS just, uh, our AWS just got hacked and, uh, they had unfettered access and, you know, everything that we were, uh, costing out in our business model for business growth just went to pay our AWS bill because it's been coin mining for the last three months, <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, well and good, right? But we still haven't addressed right the real issue, right? So when you, I don't know if you've ever encountered this, right? When you talk to people, like they always ask you, "Well, is the cloud secure?" Right? I think the short answer to that is, is it's, 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 <laughs> that's a slightly cynical approach. I would say that 
it, it's as secure as any other IT system that you you put the effort into behind to to secure it. And whether that's you know applying the same discipline and standards that you've ever applied internally, then I think the cloud can be secure. What's missing is you know cybersecurity hasn't adopted the agility you know that agile you know AWS developers have in terms of trying to go along with them in that journey to 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 secure the cloud. So. We're talking about the cloud right now, but I'm I'm wondering if we can expand that conversation to security issues that happen off premises. So, you know, CIOs and CISOs are worried right now about all the security problems that come with a work from home environment that they weren't anticipating. So, Neil and Jeff, I'm hoping you can kind of expand this conversation to the worries that CISOs and CIOs have when they're looking at all of these possible, probable misconfigurations in almost any kind of network because of this quick transition to a work from home environment. Yeah, I think um, I, I you know, kind of uh, kind of key to, to something I presented this morning, right, where you, you kind of mentioned it earlier when we talked about visibility, right? Um, I, th- I think visibility is really um, you know, kind of key to this and, and whether we're talking about the cloud or whether we're talking about, you know, to your point, the, the current pandemic situation and, you know, trying to, to provide organizations with, with a more holistic visibility. I think the, the good example of that that I've used, right, is, you know, for years and years, is, you know, since the mobile and the digital age has really kind of come up, we've talked about, um, uh, you know, how the, the perimeter of the network has, has been expanded because of something as simple as a mobile phone and because of the fact that you can get, you know, email and data and things like that on a mobile device. Um, your, your boundary is no longer the, the four walls of your office building. Um, it's, it's now been extended to wherever you take your phone to. I think that we've we've notionally accepted that as cybersecurity folks and, and infosec professionals uh, for years, but then I think when we get hit with this pandemic, you know that really gets amplified um, just because you know folks who may not have necessarily had cell phone or mobile access to their corporate networks now seventy to eighty to ninety percent of, of the population that's out there is doing literally everything um, you know you know remote working from home. And so now the boundaries of your network have really grown, you know, to, to literally everybody's house and, and maybe, you know, Starbucks or, you know, you know, wherever they happen to be, be working. And so, you know, unified visibility is, is massive in that. And we've, you know, we struggle with that. I think you also struggle with, um, with organizations who have been thrust into trying to fix, you know, or create in some cases, you know, infrastructure setups that that support a massively mobile um, uh, workforce, um, and whether that becomes, you know, I've heard stories from from folks of mine that are in the still in the service, right? Where even like you know the the one of the the branches of the 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 you know Department of Defense has struggled to get their VPN infrastructure up to be able to support all the people who would work from home on a DoD perspective, and you've got anywhere from you know, people accessing resources via a remote desktop to, you know, Citrix environments failing because they can't handle enough connections because they don't have the right VPN concentrators. I mean, just people who have just been thrust into how do I protect my data when everybody at home can access it? And then, oh, by the way, my infrastructure isn't, you know, patched, updated, you know, you know resilient enough to be able to ha- handle the influx of, of, of um, connections. I know that's not really an answer to the problem, but, you know. I, yeah, I you know, the, ni- the 90s called and they want their security architecture back. Hundred percent. Yeah, we're we're facing a totally brand new problem with you know forks and knives. <laughs> so like, this is not the tool I need to get the visibility. Uh, like, you're, you're talking about a, a a totally different set of tools that an organization already has in their environment, 
They move to the cloud and say, okay, I need to see what's going on, gain that visibility, gain that control, understand my vulnerabilities, stop those vulnerabilities. And how can I tell the business that I've de-risked their environment if I don't have the tool sets to, to do it? And so, I mean, I think it absolutely starts with the, the connection between visibility, which is a foundational piece, and uh, vulnerabilities to control capabilities. And if you don't have any one of those things, you're not able to secure the cloud because the perimeter doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. No, but I think I think also like I think the only thing I would tweak about that statement, Jeff, right, is um, I, I think you have to identify the root cause. And you know, you know me, I'm huge about making sure that we, we identify the root cause so that we fix the real root of the problem. And I think the root cause of the problem is that culturally enterprises and companies have said, well, it's fine. Everybody works from onsite anyway. So I don't really have to worry about, you know, the forks and knives, you know, that exist out there because it's really only a handful of folks. Maybe it's a third party here or there or something like that. And so the root cause. Yeah, but actually- hold on one second. What is the root cause though? Cause it, I think a, people have defined root cause incorrectly. Uh, from what I've seen, it's they've said, "Hey, root cause was this piece of malware, or it was this vulnerability." And uh, I'd argue it uh, the root cause is the fact that you didn't have any visibility, and no correlation between that and active threats, or any telemetry between cloud and on-prem, and how that connection ties into the overall kill chain back to actual root cause. So, so I don't disagree with you, but I think you and I always seem to struggle with, you know, who's the Jekyll and who's the Hyde in the conversation, right? Is, you know, who, who represents, like, we can solve this through technology versus... Wait, which one's the good one? <laughs> how, how do we solve this? How do we solve this with soft skills, right? Because I think when I say root cause, I actually don't think technology is a root cause of this. I think culture is a root cause of this. I think, I think culturally... Right. We've we've said, well, it's good enough because everybody comes into the office. It's good enough because we've got four walls and we plug into the network and we've got a firewall and everything else that's bad is on the outside of this. I think culturally we've not prepared ourselves from a cybersecurity perspective, even with you know NIST frameworks and COVID and ISO 27001 and all these things that we try to put in place to to quantify risk and identify risk and you know, talk about risk and things like that. We haven't fixed the cultural problem, which says that if you're not taking cybersecurity seriously, if you're not taking cyber resiliency serious, if you're not taking visibility seriously, then when the pandemic happens, you're all of a sudden not prepared. And that's when you're realizing that you're fighting with forks and knives. Yeah, unfortunately, it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. It's too late. That's and that's that's what the you know, if you if you looked at March and April, you know, I I don't know what what you saw, you know, in, in, in your endeavors, but March and April was just pure chaos. Every CISO and CIO out there was trying to figure exactly. out, you know, you know, how do I how do I get my remote workforce to work remotely? And every CISO's like, holy cow, my attack, you know, my attack service is just, you know, tenfolded or twenty folded. All right. So we're gonna move on to the next topic. So Wired Magazine came out with um, an article a couple days ago about a vulnerability in a certain piece of networking equipment from Seattle-based company F5 Networks. And I'm going to read directly from the article because I think it's very interesting. Uh, Last week, government agencies, including the United States Computer Emergency Readiness Team and Cyber Command, sounded the alarm on a particularly nasty vulnerability in a, P, in a line of big IP products sold by F5. So this vulnerability was, was patched over the weekend. The 
alert was sent out on July 4th and most companies have already patched a vulnerability, but Neil and Jeff, what I find interesting is a lot of companies may have already been too late in patching that, uh, that vulnerability. So can you can kind of talk about what is what Wired is calling a five, five alarm fire type vulnerability? I'm wondering if that's hyperbole and if not, why is this such a huge security vulnerability? Uh, I find, uh, and I'll jump in here real quick because I, I think this is more pervasive than just F5, right? Any vulnerability that comes out and says, hey, we've got this issue, you got to go solve it. Well, well, you talk to any corporation, there is zero ability to go out and patch that in time. So you, you see some of these things that uh, come out in the media. The reality is the hackers knew about this. The hacker community collaborates more than uh, the, you know, the white hat community. And they've already seen this uh, this vulnerability. And if they are learning about it for the first time, they know for a fact that they can go and attack any Fortune 100 company with this vulnerability before that company can go through their patch management cycle. The amount of time it takes for a company of any size to just go through the standard day-to-day process of approving a patch um, and implementing that patch after hours, because it can't affect business, mind you. Uh, it doesn't matter how vulnerable they are. If they uh, bring down the business, then all hell breaks loose. And the reality is, I think to your point earlier, Neil, it, this is a cultural problem of uh, a five alarm fire is not seen as a five alarm fire because it's deemed security will get to it as soon as we can. So you see, this is this is Jeff getting passionate about about you know the, the business standing in the way of vulnerabilities. Like you'll you'll see this as a common theme. The more vulnerabilities that we bring up is 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 business. You know you know and, and with all due respect to Jeff, I know I know I say this you know poking at him. I know he doesn't truly feel like this deep down in his cybersecurity heart. Is you know Jeff believes in screw the business, right? If it's a five alarm you know vulnerability, then 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 the business will survive um, more more so than than a hack attack and and. You know, I, I think that that's a, you know, that's, that's an extreme, right, that I think, you know, is, is hard for a lot of folks in InfoSec, um, you know, especially at the CIO and the CISO level. It's, it's, you know, we struggle with that because, you know, the business does make money, right? And, you know, it's not a matter of if you're going to get hacked. It's a matter of when you get hacked. And so do you play the roulette table? Do you roll those dice and decide like, you know, can I, maybe can I wait five days to patch? Maybe I can wait two or three days to patch. Maybe something's, you know, maybe something else will stop that attack there. And I think that's that risk management approach that, you know, is is always really, really hard to gauge with a vulnerability like the F5 one. Now, I'm not, I'm definitely not downplaying this F5 one. I think, you know, from my perspective, you know, you know, we've complained for years that, you know, the the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, you know, they don't share with us, you know, enough intelligence when it comes to actively exploitive vulnerabilities, either by our own nation or by other nations that are out there. Um, and, and so, yes, I, I actually think I actually take it pretty seriously when a, a you know somebody like like you know the NSA comes out and says, yeah, you guys should patch this right now. Um, you got to remember that's the signals intelligence part of the United States military and government structure, right? They see everything, whether you believe in Snowden or not, whether you agree with him or not, it doesn't really matter, but they're seeing a lot of stuff. And so, um, you know, if they tell you you should patch right now, yeah, you're probably already owned, you know, by it. But Neil, you, you, you've worked at uh, some very large companies and consulted for uh, others. You know, 
how long is that patch cycle between notification to evaluate? All right, I just got notified this was a five alarm fire, but is it a five alarm fire to us? And what's the impact if we don't uh, do it immediately? Okay, put it in play, schedule it, and uh, put it out there. Like, what is that cycle timeline? Cynically, it's how big the fire is underneath your butt. I mean, I've seen um, when 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 WannaCry hit. You know, there, there was an organization that I was working with when WannaCry hit. Um, they got to eighty percent within twenty four hours, and we're talking like 100, 117, 115,000 you know endpoints where they got to eighty percent in twenty four hours, um, which was you know, which you know, when you look at how vulnerability management was done outside of the fire underneath their butt, they couldn't get to eighty percent in six months, you know, for yeah. critical vulnerability. So, um, you know, I think this gets back to culturally is you know everybody is great at responding to the largest fires underneath their butt but they fail at building a program that allows them to do it in a repetitive, consistent fashion that meets the current challenges of, of the vulnerabilities. And I think what that really boils down to is, you know, because we call it a five alarm fire, we create a culture that says it's okay that you didn't patch your criticals in six months because that wasn't a five alarm fire. However, this one you really have to patch. And, and so you see a lot of organizations move on it. You could almost look at this type of alerting, you know, as, as a double-edged sword, right? Yes, we want to patch early. Yes, we want to try to get everybody patched as well. But then we just continue to foster that culture that says, you know, we're okay leaving a critical vulnerability out there for six months. Um, but yeah, for, for this one, you absolutely got to patch, you know, in the next 24 hours. You're, you're not wrong. But you, so you've communicated to the, the boards and senior levels. Uh, how do you get them to, to say that? You know, like this is the, this, the part I struggle with of, you know, you've got a five alarm fire, but it's the boy that uh, cried wolf over and over and over again, because literally you could say there's a five alarm fire in the world every single day uh, from the perspective of security. So which ones, how do you quickly determine which ones truly are? And then how do you communicate that to your leadership? So, so, so I would, I would challenge this back, right? Because there's always like the canned answers. Like if you, if you brought another CISO on right. here, if you brought, you know, if you brought somebody from the board on here, if you brought a, you know, a CFO on here, right. They'd be like, well, we got to talk about risk and, and report return on investment. And, you know, what's the value of the tools and the, that all comes back to money. It How much money are we going to lose yeah, it, by uh, doing this? Exactly. And so, you know, we get, we've had this conversation over the last couple of weeks, you know, as we've been leading up to this podcast, right. Is, is likelihood, right. And, and because, we in the cybersecurity industry have a have a struggle and a hard time deciding what the likelihood is of an attack. When we get a notice like this from the NSA, like that's our key. That's like, man, the likelihood of this attack is actually probably like tomorrow. And as a matter of fact, I think um, you know, as we were prepping to talk about this, you know, I was watching Twitter over the course of the weekend as as this was developing, right? And you know, the the Metasploit guys released a um, an exploit for this for their Metasploit framework, and and within hours of of that code being uploaded to GitHub for Metasploit, um, you know the Internet Storm Center was reporting through their honeypots, um, you know active exploitation of of that you know uh, that exploit out there in the wild, and so you know we've determined likelihood based on the reputation of an organization like this that comes forward, but we failed at determining likelihood everywhere else. So Jeff, I'm, I'm, I want to kind of pick on something you said earlier, where you, you talking about everything is an, a, a five alarm fire. How do you, when you're talking to CISOs and CIOs, how do you talk about implementing a framework that is able to 
triage what seems like a five alarm everything is a fire five alarm fire how do companies get to a point where they're they're able to have a consistent triaging system to where hey this one can wait but this one cannot well i i think there's a communication breakdown uh and that communication breakdown is between the security team and anyone who's in charge of the money uh whether it's your cfo the board uh, CIO, CTO, who, whoever is in charge of saying, yes, it is important enough to the business to make this investment um, or invoke this risk, whatever. And that is that security teams talk about vulnerabilities and they talk about uh, the, the problems that they're seeing. Um, where I think there's a giant mismatch is there is an inability to communicate that, and here is the result of that vulnerability or here is the business impact to your risk um, we have now gone from a 20 percent risk of being owned to an 85 percent risk of being owned uh, with this vulnerability alone and the reality is this is a pervasive uh, across our network ownership if we don't do something about it um, and I, I think there's a lack of education and training around uh, how that impact uh, can be communicated to the person who's receiving it, right? But if you, if you look at like let's talk about that value of that impact, though, because if you look at how modern reporting structures are made, like when you look inside of an, a CISO organization, right, you know, you've got a SecOps team, you know, that's that's very technical, very focused on operations, right, on, on you know, there's the soldiers on the front line that are fighting. Well, there's a cost that, center. Yeah. Yeah. How yes. do you, how do you take that out of that technical lens landscape and that technical lens and you start to assign a do dollar value to this? And this gets, this gets a little morbid when you, you know, you get kind of down into it, but how do you break down, you know, an incident response analyst, you know, here's how much an incident response analyst costs per hour to work an incident. Okay. If he has to go re-image, you know, Jeff's computer, how much does it cost the organization to have Jeff out of pocket because his computer is getting re-imaged? You know, what about the the technicians that are, you know, that are in the outsourcing, you know, um, agency, whether they're help desk or, you know, WePro or, you know, HCL or whatever the case is, right? You know, how do you, how do you value those costs? And then you, you have to create more, um, you, this is going to sound horrible. And I know this is probably going to be like literally an unpopular opinion when people listen to this, but you have to create more bean counters inside the cybersecurity organization. We ran into the exact same thing when we built cyber in, in the Air Force, right? Was we were trying to sell cyber to pilots. And pilots see bombs on targets and they see plumes of smoke and they get that kinetic effect that, you know, that that worked. You know, until we can speak in beans, you know, in a better way for the for the CIOs and the CFOs and the CTOs and, and the CEOs, we're going to continue to struggle to have that conversation. So you are you almost saying that we we need a proprietary, we need risk managers who are proprietary to cybersecurity to be able to understand the financial value of some of these things and communicate them to boards? I, I think I think a better you know, join between finance and risk needs to happen. I don't think that we have mastered the art um, of quantifying risk with enough financial impact. Um, you know, I've, I've watched organizations try to do it. Um, I've watched organizations go through exercises, but when you start to, you know, and, and you've worked insurance, Matt, so I mean, I don't know, you know, if you've got experience doing this from the insurance side or not, but, you know, it's, 
it's hard to come through and say, well, okay, you've got a manufacturing site. This manufacturing site produces this product. Well, how many other manufacturing sites can act redundant if this manufacturing sites go down? Is this a one-off manufacturing site or does it only get one product that then goes to support this other product? Is it key to this local economy or this type of market share? You know, you, all those factors that go in that you would normally find like a disaster recovery or business continuity plan, how do you extract that financial data and then apply um, you know, kind of a cyber risk control, you know, you know, framework on top of that, and then somehow come out with a, a risk framework and a quantitative uh, dollar figure value that helps to, to, to solve that financial problem. And I've watched organizations do that. And that's hard to do. Well, it's, it's hard to do because no one has buy-in on applying soft dollars to a return on investment analysis. The what if factor of a breach or uh, what happens if uh, we, you know, have a hundred machines that are compromised or a thousand or 2000, you know, uh, there's a soft dollar amount to that. that's a lot harder to quantify. And therefore, you know, you've got procurement that doesn't take it into account, finance that doesn't take it into account. And the security teams don't really have, have an interest of talking about it. Right. I'll, I'll, get back to, I'll get back to something that you'll hear me repeat. The more we do these, the more you'll hear me repeat this because I truly do believe like ever since I did work you know, with Aon and Lloyd's over insurance and things like this, the more this just really kind of resonates with me is, is likelihood. Right. So we've got this five alarm fire. You know, if, if you walked into your, your number one company right now, you know, you know, Jeff, whoever, whoever that was, right. And they were to ask you point blank in the range, I want a percentage likelihood that I'm going to get hit with this. And then they want to see the math. You don't have a way to do that. There is no industry standard way to do that. There is no way to define that likelihood. And I think, I think we can do all these quantitative and, and soft dollar, you know, you know, exercises, and we can get to a lot of really good numbers. But we go back to kind of that insurance metric, which is what is the likelihood that that's going to happen? You know, one of the things I find interesting about the insurance perspective, especially on soft dollars, is they're able to take a, a, a holistic viewpoint of of say it's an insurance event. So, so in our case, let's just say a, a cyber attack. And one of those things that they're able to bring in is public relations, labor costs that are associated with marketing communications with, with hardware, with software. And you're able to paint a picture that's much larger than, Hey, this is an IT problem. This is a network problem. So one of the things, you know, that, that we really need to focus on in the cybersecurity sector is essentially showing how cybersecurity not only costs immediate money if, say, your network is, is hit by a ransomware, but you're also talking about the labor costs that are they're associated with building back trust with your clients, building back trust with your prospective employees. You're talking about sales teams that are having to spend almost years sometimes building trust with with their, the prospects that they've been talking to every day. So really the the big thing to take into account when we talk about the importance of, say, patching network vulnerabilities is what happens when we don't and what happens when the entire business needs to shift on a dime because we didn't pass we didn't patch a vulnerability that is now affecting every sector of the organization. Almost like an actuarial table for security. Correct. Oh, that's, that's a term I've never heard of before. I'm about to Google that one. That's <laughs> what happens when you marry security with uh, you know insurance, right? We're not married. <laughs> right. We're not married though. What is what is that? Just dating. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, gentlemen, our, our final topic today is kind of blending the cyber criminal world with the outside criminal world. Uh, British and EU officials recently disabled uh, the encrypted communication service EncroChat. Um, EncroChat was a service that was an encrypted messaging service used by criminal organizations that was only enabled on custom-built devices for criminals at a hefty price, and those devices had the camera, the microphone, and the GPS removed. Uh, Vice reported that French authorities were able to hack EncroChat and essentially monitor criminal organizations throughout Europe, uh, Africa, and the Middle East. And so what's what's really interesting is, so we have cyber criminals and outside criminals working together. We have an encrypted chat service that only comes with an exclusive device. You know, is this, what do you find interesting about this? Because this seems like there, this is a very nuanced subject that involves an interesting hack by French authorities. And that involves a kind of interesting way to use an encrypted service that only comes with its own device. So, so I think I, you know, I find kind of two divergent conversations here with this one, right? There's, there's the vulnerability, right? Which we can kind of relate back to some of the previous vulnerability conversations we were just having. Right. But I think there's this idea that, you now have traditionally, um, you know, still a military term here, right? Kinetic, uh, you know, criminals, right. Folks who are dealing in, in, you know, you know, you know, guns for sale, you know, drugs, you know, hitman type stuff, um, you know, you know, stuff that's, that's traditionally kind of unsavory, right. Um, who are, you know, intentionally going out and either looking for companies like, like Inkrochat, right. Or, um, you know, even outsourcing to, to freelance hackers to build these types of, of privatized, uh, encrypted communications. And this isn't the first instance of this. If, if anybody's, you know, you know, vices, I love vice for this. As a matter of fact, I think, I think vice does a fantastic job of, of running these down, right. Is, um, if you've ever watched their cyber war series, um, I think season two of their cyber war series, the very last one actually talked about, um, um, uh, you know, you know, using, you know, NSO style privatized intelligence um, to, to track down, you know, cartels in Mexico. But in that same story, they also talked about how the cartels in Mexico were hiring hackers to build their own radio networks, to build their own cell networks, to build their own encrypted cell phones, um, to basically try to to subvert some of these, these you know, either state-sponsored intelligence or, or privatized intelligence firms from trying to track down their activity. And so, this is truly an evolution of those kinetic style, um, uh, you know, traditional criminal type of activities where, you know, they're bringing in some of these, these hackers and these, these technologists or going and finding companies like EncroChat to say, well, you know, we're, we're just going to continue to leverage this technology and do things on our own to try to, to try to evade law enforcement. I think that's what's, you know, what's interesting is to see that marrying of, of both of those worlds really kind of come together because, you know, traditionally they were almost viewed as, as separate. I, I'm kind of shocked that uh, uh, they ended up letting this information out, <laughs> to be honest with you, because, <laughs> I mean, the you, you take a look at, uh, you know, uh, they said 8,000 kilograms, that's 17,000 pounds of cocaine, right? And uh, that's a lot of cocaine that was... Are you know, you, are, I, can't tell, I can't tell if you're surprised or impressed or you're like, I, I want to know how to get that much cocaine out. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to quantify like, oh, my gosh, that, that is a lot of cocaine that they just seized because of this. But, I mean, if you kind of wonder, like, if that is what hit the media of, hey, we stopped this, 
what didn't hit the media that was really, really interesting, right? Um, like, what was the reason that they uh, said, okay, we need to come clean and <laughs> let this uh, this information out? Because it had to be something eminent that well, was big time. Well, I think I think in addition to that, right, I think you, you hit on a key point, right, which is this is something that's been brought to the public eye. And when you look across, like, Silk Road, when you look across, like, you know, some of the other, you know, you know, pedo rings that they've um, taken down over the number of years for the FBI and even, you know, National Crime Agency and things like this. Um, you know, what, what we're not, if we're not careful, we'll overlook is we should really be looking at the, the court documents that they release and, um, you know, some of the, the evidentiary, you know, stuff that they put forward in terms of what vulnerability they, they disclose, because this gets back kind of to our previous conversation, right, in terms of, you know, um, you know, was there a zero day out there that nobody knew about? Was this a flaw in the encryption, which could be, you know, if we, if we really think doomsday scenario, right, we think five, five fire alarm, right? You know, if we fall, if, if some government agency found some flaw to some of the root encryption, um, you know, of, of something that's kind of key to the, to, to the whole internet, that could be pr- pretty problematic for us. And so I, I think that's really what we have to look for as a, as a community is, you know, what underlying happened uh, as part of that. Well, it's, it's been interesting chatting with you guys and uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with you next week. Uh, thanks for joining me. And uh, if you're listening, we, we look forward to you know, seeing you next week. Thanks guys. Thanks guys. Thank you. Great talking.